Welcome to the Gospel Ministry of Exchange Church. Thank you for connecting with us for our Bible talk today, and please feel free to share these talks with others as well. It's our desire to connect people to Jesus and grow people in Jesus. To find out more about us, please visit our website, www.exchangechurch.org.au. of Christ in chapter 23 and then we're going to uh, see 24 next week the resurrection of Christ again as we just um, place ourselves uh, in that thought of what's happening here in this chapter let me think about this Uh, companies sometimes will spend vast amounts of money in developing a logo for their advertising it's normally something a design that's catchy and colorful displaying something about their company so that when you see that that logo you recognize uh, the company well christianity does something similar we're not a business we're not trying to sell anything and it's not so much a logo but it's more like a symbol that says something about us what do you think that symbol is yes you're right It's a cross. But in many respects, it's a strange symbol. The cross is an instrument of torture and of death. We may not see it like that today, but in Roman times, that's exactly how they saw uh, the cross. It was an instrument of torture and death. You know, for us, if we wanted to be contemporary about this, what we would do is go and put an electric chair up on a pole and put that out the front of our church. That probably wouldn't look so good, wouldn't look so inviting, would it? It's a really strange symbol that we have, but yet the cross, this instrument of torture, this instrument of death, is the core of the gospel. It's the very centre of the gospel. And the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ, solves humanity's single biggest problem. We're going to look at that today as we go into Luke. So just join with me as we follow on from Tommy there, and we read from verses 32 through to 43. Uh, two other criminals, two others who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and... But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise.
Father, thank you. Thank you for this uh, wonderful and glorious opportunity to come and open up your word. We ask and pray today that, Holy Spirit, as we talk about the cross, as we think about the death of Jesus here, what this signifies, what this does for the biggest problem in our life, sin. Jesus has dealt with that and put all of our sin away at the cross. So we ask today, Lord, please give us uh, fresh eyes to go deeper into the cross, deeper into the sufferings of Christ, deeper into the awareness of sin in our own lives and deeper into the grace that you've given to us by washing all of that sin away through your precious blood that you shed for us on Calvary's Hill. God, we ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. What Luke writes here is he gets towards the end of this book of what we would call like mega chapters. They are packed full of verses. You probably see some have got like 70 odd verses or what have we got there? 70 odd verses in one and quite a few in the next one as well. Uh, There's a lot of stuff happening here in these last 24 hours of Jesus before he dies. I'm sure Luke had trouble thinking, well, what am I going to put in here? Because as he was going around and gathering these eyewitnesses and getting these reports, What do I put in there? Well, we can rest assured that God knew exactly what he wanted to put in those last couple of chapters of Luke and the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to put in there what we need to see today to see a glorious picture of Christ. Uh, The cross of Jesus Christ is the core of the gospel. And in Luke's gospel prior to this, there's a definite turning point with Jesus in chapter 9. We're not going to go back to it now, but if you did go back to it, there's a definite turning point here. It says Jesus put his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus knew then at that point in time he was going to Jerusalem to die, to die. Here's where we find ourselves with a bit of context going into the background here. Uh, Jesus has just celebrated the Last Supper with the disciples. We looked at that last week and this was celebrated the night before in Jesus' last 24 hours. He has then moved to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, there to be betrayed by Judas, one of his disciples who was with him in that Last Supper. Jesus is arrested by the temple police in the Garden of Gethsemane, betrayed by Judas on behalf of the Pharisees. He's brought before the religious council right there and then in the middle of the night and he's put on trial there before them with a whole heap of false blasphemy charges is what they brought against Jesus. Falsely accused and condemned by them with evil intent at that particular time. Uh, They don't want to put Jesus to death or they don't want to be guilty, sorry, of putting Jesus to death. So they bring him now to Pilate, who's the Roman governor of that time, so that he would execute Jesus. And this gets us now to where Luke 23 is at. All that has taken place and Jesus is now brought before Pilate uh, in this next trial for him. Now, I'm convinced here that as we look at these last few chapters, these mega chapters as it were of Luke, the Holy Spirit's recorded lots of information here to really help us to get into the, the situation that's taking place here that surrounds the cross because Luke wants us to see here that the cross is the core of the gospel. Here's our big idea as we think about that, and it's this. God has dealt with humanity's single biggest problem through the cross of Jesus Christ. God has dealt with humanity's single biggest problem through the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Okay, as we think about this chapter here, what Luke's doing, he goes to great length in the early part of this chapter to show the innocence of Jesus throughout this whole ordeal. Uh, the religious leaders bring Jesus to Pilate, accusing him of leading a rebellion. Pilate, this guy's saying he's a king. Any king is in defiance to Caesar and against Rome. They accuse Jesus from every direction, bringing false charge upon false charge before Pilate. And here's how Pilate responds in verse 4. He says this, Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. In other words, Jesus is innocent. Pilate now sends Jesus to Herod after religious leaders aren't happy with that initial verdict. And again, the, the Pharisees and the religious one, the leaders, vehemently accuse Jesus before Herod. Herod questions Jesus with lots of things. Herod's actually looking to see Jesus do a miracle this time as well. But Jesus answers not a word. He doesn't say a thing to Herod. He doesn't say a word. Pilate calls back the chief priests and tells them again, there's the verdict. We find nothing against this man. And then Pilate concludes with this in verses 15 and 16. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Well, you'd think the Pharisees and the religious people would give up by then. They're still not happy with this verdict. And now they stir up the crowds to demand that Jesus be crucified. So Pilate, a third time, Luke's trying to tell us something here, confesses Jesus' innocence. Go and look in verse 22 and it says this, A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I find in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. What's Luke trying to show us here? He's vividly portraying to us the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Luke is giving us a picture here of the innocent Son of God being rejected by humanity. They don't want to recognize him. They don't want to recognize who he is. They refuse to acknowledge him in truth. They refuse to acknowledge that Jesus is the innocent one sent to save us. They don't want to see that. They're rejecting that. So Luke starts off here with this innocence of Christ and this rejection of who he is. Why don't they want to recognize Jesus as the Son of God? Why don't they want to recognize him as the Messiah? Why does Herod just want to be entertained by Jesus, like do me a sign, Jesus, and at the same time refusing to see him as the Son of God? Why does the crowd pressure Pilate to release for them from prison a terrorist called Barabbas and then shout for Jesus, the innocent one, to be killed? Why does that happen? The answer to that question gets at the core of humanity's single biggest problem. At the core of who we are, is a refusal to love God for who he is. It's a refusal to see him as the greatest treasure in the world. It's a refusal to see that God is in the beauty of holiness, the most glorious being there is. It's a refusal to see that God is the most spectacular being in the universe who deserves all worship and praise and glory. Let me ask you, do those sort of thoughts about God cross your mind at all during the day? Do you think about God like that? 
Do those thoughts, if you do have some passing thoughts, do they have regular and long sessions in your mind that you're just thinking and dwelling on that for a long period of time? Probably not. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, maybe those thoughts about God never cross your mind. You never think about God as the most glorious and supreme being in the universe. Maybe you just go about life doing this and doing that and planning a holiday and purchasing a car and buying a home and looking for a new job and there's nothing wrong with all of those things when we can do those things, of course. And God really doesn't figure in your mind at all when you're doing those sort of things. If you're an unbeliever, maybe, maybe this, maybe God does come into the picture if something really bad happens in your life and things get out of control. Like if someone close to you is really sick and then you'll accept some prayer from somebody, could you please pray for my sick son or daughter or mother or father? And maybe you might even utter a few words to God yourselves. But then very quickly when things begin to smooth out again, we forget about God again and we just sort of move back onto life. So the first two human beings created in Adam and Eve were the first people to turn their backs on God. They failed to love God supremely as their creator and they took life into their own hands. It's all about us now. God told them that the day you turn your back on me is the day you'll die. You'll die a spiritual death, not so much a physical death, and you'll be cut off from all the joyful life that I give to you. On that day when you turn your back on me, you'll die in that way. And as soon as Adam and Eve did disobey God and did turn their back on him, they instantly, instantly felt guilty, ashamed and fearful for their disobedience before God. They hid from God because they they knew they were guilty. It's a real picture here of what happens when we cut ourselves off from God by not loving him supremely and obeying him as our glorious Lord. You see, the Bible calls this lack of love, this disobedience, this unwillingness to see that God deserves all glory, power, honour and praise, the Bible calls this sin. Sin. And sin tells me this. Sin tells me that the universe is all about me. I'm at the centre of my life. Life is all about me. And everything is here in this world to make me feel good about myself. Because I'm the centre of life. And then sin spirals itself into a downward path of continually moving away from God and filling my heart with self-centred thoughts that are all about me. Sin tells me I deserve better than this. Sin tells me that I deserve better than how others are treating me because life is all about me. It's not about God, it's about me. Sin's also incredibly deceptive as it works in our lives as well. Not only does it tell me I'm the centre of the universe, it tells me I'm not really that bad at the core. It's all the other people around about me who are bad, but in, in the middle I'm really okay. I'm a little bit rough around the edges, sin might say, but in the core of who I am, in my heart, I'm pretty good at heart. That's what sin does, it deceives us. I find this actually quite amusing. Sometimes you'll read in the newspapers, you'll see that someone's been killed for their criminal activities and at their funeral, you'll see someone give up and make comments like this. If you just knew him, he was a big softy. He was a loving guy at heart. If you just knew him. But then you look at his rap sheet from the police and he's got aggravated burglary, he's got reckless assault and he's got violence orders. 
and you see a different picture. We like to think at the core we're okay. That's because sin deceives us. It's because we don't supremely love God as our glorious creator. Sin works its way into the smallest areas of our life. It really does. I see somebody's photos on social media and it's amazing how quickly jealousy will begin to just sort of breed in my heart. I wish it was me in that photo. I wish I was enjoying what they're enjoying. Sin creeps into the smallest and quietest areas of our lives. It invades every part of who we are because life is all about me. Life is not about God as my creator. Sin is humanity's single biggest issue. Every form of evil and unkindness finds its roots in the sinful desires within our own hearts. Think about what's happening here in this story with Jesus. Jesus, who is innocent, is condemned unjustly by the crowd. Like, what did he do wrong that the crowds are now calling for his blood? That's sin working in their hearts. Jesus is innocent, but they're calling for him to be crucified. Why are they shouting out to Barabbas, a convicted terrorist? We want this terrorist released and we want to kill innocent Jesus. Why is that? Sin is working in our hearts. Every one of us is infected by sin. Romans chapter 3 tells us that. Look at this in verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Very comprehensive verse. That's not telling us we can, we're as bad as we can be and that we're not capable of doing some good things. We're not capable of doing any good things, as it were, to recommend ourselves to God. Well, that's not telling us that we are all as equally bad as each other because some people are more corrupted by evil than others. What that's saying to us is all of us, all of us are sinful to some degree. And any degree of sinfulness is an assault or an attack on God's holiness, on God's person. God is perfectly holy, gloriously holy, beautiful in holiness, the word the Bible tells us. God doesn't treat sin lightly. He can't. He mustn't. He shouldn't. For God to be perfectly pure and holy, he must deal with sin justly. He cannot tolerate sin because then he would not be holy. He would not be just. Sin must be eliminated. It's just like we want to eliminate evil from our society. We put a whole justice system in place to quell and squash evil. We don't want it to rise up in our society. We want to eradicate it from our society. God does the same thing. The only way to be rid of evil that God determines is death. Death. Romans 6.23 tells us that. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The single biggest drama in our life is sin. Sin. Our unwillingness to supremely love God above everything else. 
It's our single biggest drama. You may have a health crisis in your life. That is not your biggest problem in life. It's a big problem, but it's not your biggest problem. You may have financial dramas in your life. That is not your biggest problem in life. It's a big problem, but it's not the biggest problem in your life. You may have relational dramas in your life. That's a problem, but it's not your biggest problem in life. We may have the coronavirus in our world. It's a big problem. It's global proportions, but it's not our biggest problem in life. You may have vaccine challenges and really uncertain about it. That's a problem, but that's not your biggest problem in life. The single most important problem in your life and my life is our unwillingness to love God supremely above all other things. We want to centre our life around ourselves. And the fact is this, that one day we must all face the judgment of God. He is our rightful ruler and our rightful creator and he's our rightful judge to be judged for the sinful disobedience at some stage in our life, whether we die physically and we meet him or whether he returns again. Judgment awaits every single person. Guilty. See, this is why Luke is writing these final chapters for us today here in his book. Luke is telling us here God's answer for our single biggest problem. Everything about Jesus here leads us to this point in Jerusalem right here, right now in Luke 23. Get the picture here of what Luke is showing us. Have a look in verses 32 and 33 where he tells us this. Uh, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. That's Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left... It's really amazing fact, even in that little verse there, they just says they crucified him. You could go through a whole lot of details about the crucifixion there, which we won't, but they just, they just cover it with a few words. A gruesome, gruesome death. Here's the picture though. Jesus is being portrayed here as a criminal dying amongst criminals. Now hang on. Didn't Luke go to great pains at the start of this chapter to show us his innocence? So why now is he reflecting Jesus as a criminal? We see it actually even earlier in the chapter that Luke's giving us something here to see, as it were, beneath what he's writing. The condemned guilty terrorist in Barabbas is set free, yet the innocent Jesus is now the condemned facing the penalty of death. There's a real picture here of exchanging of places. The condemned goes free and the innocent is now condemned. What are you doing, Luke? What are you writing this for? How are you trying to get us to think about the scripture here? Luke is doing something. He's showing us here the glory of God through Jesus Christ of the cross. He's setting us up here to see this very thing. That Jesus, the Son of God, the innocent one, as he said at the start of the chapter, the Lamb of God is now bearing our sin to take the place of the guilty. Jesus steps in where we should be. He takes our place and bears our punishment. We are the guilty party, but Jesus takes our place. 
Luke's masterfully writing this for us as he turns this around. What is this that Luke's showing us? This is God's grace. This is, the, this is God's love demonstrated for us here at the cross. What a remarkable picture that Luke's writing for us here. The sovereign king of the universe, the sovereign creator of the universe, who created us and gives us every good thing to enjoy, yet we turn our backs on him and love ourselves more than we love him, the creator of all this good. This sovereign being, this sovereign king, sends his only son to come and bear our punishment so that we can go free. That's an astounding story. I've read recently in the Jesus film that's been made actually about the book of Luke, when this travels the world and goes to countries where they haven't seen Jesus before and they see this scene where Jesus is crucified, the people there break down and they weep when they see this scene because they get it. They get what's happened. They cry at the injustice of what's happened to Jesus. They actually begin to see God's plan come into place. They see what's taking place here. They see the grace of God made known through Christ at the cross. You see, this is the core of the Christian message. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross does many, many things for us. It reminds me of the disaster that sin is in my life to me, how it corrupts me. The cross reminds me that I've forfeited my life because of sin. I've turned my back on God and I've forfeited that life. The cross reminds me that God doesn't take sin lightly. He doesn't just sweep it under the carpet and give me a little slap over the wrists over it. God doesn't take sin lightly. The full force of God's justice is meted out on his one and only beloved son in my place. The cross reminds me that God loves me and has chosen uh, to send his son to take my place when I look at the cross. That Jesus became my sin bearer. It's a powerful thing the cross reminds me of. The cross reminds me that I'm more broken than I can ever believe. But at the very same time, I'm also more loved than I can ever imagine. It's a glorious picture of brokenness and love being fused together in the person of Jesus Christ. And even as we think about the passage we just read here, we see the grace of Christ shown to criminals, at least one criminal, on the cross right beside him. As we read there before, there are two criminals who are condemned alongside Jesus. And one of them starts shouting at Jesus. It says that the word railing at him in an angry way. Hey, Jesus, if you are the Christ, just save us and get us out of here, why don't you? Just do something. Make a name for yourself. The other criminal responds, hey, hey, don't you know, don't you have any respect for God? You and I are both guilty. We're deserving of death, but, but Jesus is innocent. Just think about that. That criminal's beginning to get it. The scales of the world are beginning to be pulled away from his eyes. This criminal knows that he's guilty before God and rebelling against God. But then look at what he says next. This criminal who's beginning to see things. And he says to Jesus in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, I know you're a king. You are the Lord of your kingdom. Jesus, please, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Please, Jesus, I'm putting my trust in you that you can save me from this. 
Look at how Jesus responds to him in this absolutely tense situation and tense scene. He says to him in verse 43, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus, how can you say that? How can you truly say that? How can you say that, that today he'll be with you in your presence, that very day? Jesus, don't you know who this person is? Don't you know that he's a criminal who's who's lived his entire life centred on himself? It's been all about him? He's allowed evil to so corrupt his core, his central part of who he is, that he's become a thief causing destruction and heartache wherever he goes. He's been ripping people off. He's been taking people down, Jesus. Don't you know that? Jesus says, I know who he is. I know who he is. He's a sinner. He's broken. He's fallen. He's undeserving and unworthy of anything from me. But look at him, Jesus would say. He's come to me humbly, owning up to me in reality of who he really is. He's not putting on a pretend exterior. He's not thinking he's just a bit rough around the edges and the core is okay. He's got nothing to offer me. He's simply trusting that I'm a king and that I can save him. What's that? That's an unbelievable picture of grace in such an epic moment of time. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Jesus does what no other human could ever do. Adam and Eve, created perfectly in the image of God, couldn't withstand the temptations in the Garden of Eden, in all of their perfections in that time. Jesus, fully God, fully man, does what we could never, ever do. Lives perfectly before the Father, the spotless, sinless, righteous Lamb of God. And then gloriously lays down his life on the cross as payment for our sin. What's Jesus doing here with this criminal? He's actually exchanging places with this criminal next to him while he dies. Not physically, but spiritually. Both are dying. Jesus is in the middle and this criminal's either the left or the right of him. Both are dying, yet Jesus is taking God's wrath in the place of that criminal right in that moment. Right at that moment. What is that again in this 11th hour? That is the good news of the gospel through the cross. Tell me, what do you think of that criminal when you think about that situation? Is that fair? Should he get into heaven? Like, what did he do? He never even read his Bible. He never went to church. He wasn't in a small group. He didn't do anything. Has he done anything to deserve salvation? Nothing. He hasn't done anything to deserve salvation. And he could never do anything to deserve salvation because it's not about him. The cross is all about the salvation that Jesus Christ alone can give and offer for us through him. How do you think that criminal felt a little bit later that day? No longer on earth, but then in paradise with Jesus. How do you think he felt then? 
he would think this is unbelievable I've put my faith and trust in Christ for that last hour of my life and he has gloriously accepted me just as I am this is the astounding point of the cross the astounding point of the cross that God chose to use the cross to reveal his unimaginable grace towards us this astounding picture here of the cross of both brokenness and love coming together in the person of Jesus Christ let me finish here with this promise in Romans chapter 8 that grows our heart in worship and in faith as we think about what Christ has done at the cross for us he says this in Romans chapter 8 what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God gives up his son for us at the cross. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you are struggling today to see God's commitment towards us or towards yourself and wondering, is he really for us? Is God really for us? Look to the cross. Look to what God has done for you, to rescue you and to save you. Are you despairing again today over another lockdown? Like we all are sharing some element of that despair. God, are you you here in this crisis, God? It just seems like you're distant, you're not amongst us. Look at the cross. Look at what God has done for us. See the grace that he's pouring out towards us as we view the cross. Because what has God done? He has crushed our single biggest problem in our life. He's dealt with sin once and for all through the crucifixion of his son. And when you gaze at the cross, when you gaze at Christ, when you gaze at the work of what's happening there, your heart fills and swells with the love that he shows us. And sure, the problems are still around us, but it's amazing how they just begin to diminish in size. They become smaller as you see what God has done for us. For surely, if he's given us his son, he'll give us everything that's needed to overcome in this life and to enjoy his presence forever. Jesus Christ at the cross is where our focus needs to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come today and uh, open up your word. Firstly, Lord, I, I want to say sorry. Sorry for my inability, Lord, to express exactly what the cross should be. Words fail me, Lord. Ideas fail me. We could never produce from our own imagination what we can see in the cross. It is truly the glory of God. But I would pray that, Holy Spirit, you would take the message of the cross again today, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the very core of who we are. And maybe today, Lord, there are those who are hearing it for the first time. I pray, Lord, please open up their eyes. Open up their eyes for this foolishness, as it were, to see a man dying on the cross and saying, this is the saviour of the world. Open up their eyes, Lord, to see that this is the glory of God, that this is the most wonderful and glorious thing that we can see. God who comes as the perfect, pure, innocent, spotless Lamb of God in Jesus Christ 
and takes upon himself all of our ugliness, takes upon himself all of our brokenness, takes upon himself all of our sinfulness, our evilness, and exchanges that at the cross and accepts us now through the death of his son. Please, Holy Spirit, for those who have never seen that before, would you please open their eyes up today? And for us who are struggling in life, Lord, please open our eyes up to a deeper impression of the cross upon us, that our hearts would respond with just loving joy and loving worship and obedience, gladness for who God is and what he's done. And with joy, Lord, as Jesus said, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Let that joy fill our hearts too, Lord, what Jesus has done for us on our behalf. Father, I ask that I pray that this morning now in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you have enjoyed our Bible talk from today. If you have any questions or comments from today's talk, please feel free to contact us at info at exchangechurch.org.au. Also, we love to welcome new people at Exchange Church in person, so consider yourself invited to be with us.